Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. students out on mission teams with high school and middle school. We have all the leaders, we have all the parents that are going on vacation because their students are on trips. Uh, and so it's kind of a light Sunday. It feels like one of those weeks where you ought to leave knowing everybody's name in the room, uh, but at least learn one new one and take advantage of, of the smallness. It's probably best because, as you just heard, we're still in the bad news section of Romans. Uh, I've been very gracious with this to keep it short. The way Paul unfolds this, it gets worse before it gets better. That's why I labeled my first three sermons in this series, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, this is the ugly part, and um, we know that's how life is sometimes. Things have to get worse before they get better. You have chronic pain. You have to have the pain of surgery. Sometimes you have to have the pain of rehab in order to get to a point of wholeness and, and health. And so last week we looked at the beginning of the bad news section. This week we've jumped to the end. We're just looking at the bookends here. I think we get the the big idea of what Paul is talking about. I spared you many weeks of bad news. One of the commentators that I've been reading in preparation for this, he's a Presbyterian pastor, and basically the book is his sermons that have been put together. And I'll tell you, he was in week 35 by the time he got to this morning's Romans 3, 9 through 20. Week 35. We're in week 3. So, none of you can say I didn't do anything for you. Um, You're very welcome. Uh, We have gone through the bad news very quickly. And Paul concludes this section of the letter with this big idea. A sweeping pronouncement that the whole world is under the judgment of God because of our sin. That's the verdict. His language here is legal. The charge against us in the courtroom of God is that you are guilty. So that's where we'll begin this morning, with the charge in verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. So we, we went over it, but in this bad news section, Paul's been wrestling with this question. Do we have some kind of advantage being Jews, himself being a Jew? Is there an advantage to this spiritually? And it's a complex question. His answer is basically yes and no. Kind of yes, but more so no. And we have an advantage because God has revealed himself to us. He's revealed his truth through our people. He's made covenant promises with us. But ultimately, Paul concludes We're all at the same place at the end of the day because we're all under sin and we're all guilty and we all need the gospel. He's already said the gospel is the power of salvation for both Jew and Gentile. And so the advantage we have really points us all ultimately in the direction of Christ. And without Christ, we have no advantage. We have no salvation. Now pay attention to Paul's language here. He doesn't say that all people commit sins, which is true. We do. He doesn't say all people are sinners. Notice he's very precise. He says all people are under the power of sin. 
And it's a charge, this word. It's a legal declaration. It's as if all people are carrying around a legal document like a passport, and it is stamped on the front page under sin. And that is our legal status until we get another status, which is under grace. So there's only, there are only two legal statuses that you can have, under sin or under grace. And apart from Christ and apart from the gospel, all people are declared guilty and under sin. And so in order to understand this charge here, we have to understand two important doctrinal statements or things that we believe because of Scripture. The first one is the doctrine of original sin. Now, we're going to get into some of these a little bit more as we go through the book of Romans as it comes up. And I'm just going to scratch the surface. So if you're familiar with this, this is probably going to be a review. But we believe that Scripture teaches very clearly the doctrine of original sin. Okay, two examples among many, one from the Old and one from the New Testament. The first one from Psalm 51. It says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And then Paul concludes in Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. So here's what the doctrine of original sin is talking about. It's not just talking about the first sin of Adam and Eve, but the consequences of that. The conclusion of Scripture is that when sin entered the world, we now, just being part of the human race, we have inherited a sinful, corrupted nature. So you don't become a sinner when you commit your first sin. The reason that you sin is because you are a sinner by nature. That is your nature. Now, pastor, that sounds kind of dramatic. I mean, aren't we all pretty much basically good people? And if we're given the right circumstances and the right resources, we'll all make good decisions. The Bible's answer is no. And so, and your news feed affirms that fact. As human beings, we're not basically good. We're very sinful. And Paul makes this case very clearly. And so, because of this, we have this sinful nature. This doesn't mean that Every person commits the same number of sins or the same type of sins. It means that we're all in the same boat. We come into the world, we enter into a rebellion that has already started. We can't escape it. We are sinners by our nature. That's what Scripture argues. And that leads to a closely related doctrine, which is the doctrine of total depravity. Genesis 6-5, that's very early in the Bible, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Then Paul in Ephesians 2 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Other places he says you were a slave to sin. We need to be redeemed. So we're not just people that need a little bit of help. We are spiritually dead before Christ makes us alive. We are bound to our sin. We have this nature that needs to be transformed. And so it's not just about dealing with individual sins or atoning for individual sins. There is a transformation of your very nature that must take place. And so total depravity teaches that because of this fall, because of this nature, sin now affects every part of life on planet Earth. 
your mind, your emotions, your will, your intentions, your actions, your decisions, your thoughts, your relationships, everything. And ultimately, your worship. And we, in and of ourselves, will not choose the way of Christ by ourselves. We will not, unless our nature is changed, we will never trust God and we will never obey God. That's why the Bible uses the imagery of being born again or born from above. It's that dramatic. Spiritually, you are dead. You must be raised to life. And that can only happen by the grace of God. I want to give you a a quick illustration. It's a bit silly, but let's imagine for a moment we have a contest between three contestants. And the goal of this is that there's a very large object that they must try to push over each person in the contest. Well, our first contestant is a five-year-old boy. Our second is a 30-year-old man. And our third contestant is world's strongest man, you know, the bodybuilder, huge ripped guys that can like push buses and stuff. Okay? So we're thinking, okay, we know how this is going to go. I mean, obviously, the strong man is going to win. The problem, though, in this scenario is the object that we are asking them to push over is a skyscraper. So certainly the little boy cannot put as much force against a skyscraper as the strong man, but the net result is exactly the same. You can't even come close. And that is how it is spiritually with us. Us, We trying to save ourselves by doing good works is like trying to push over a skyscraper. It can't be done. It's ridiculous to think about. And so to think, well, I'm a slightly better person than this person, that's like comparing the little boy to the strong man. Well, either way, you're trying to push over a skyscraper, and it doesn't work. It can only happen supernaturally by the grace of God. And so Paul makes this case here that we're all guilty. He goes into a very detailed legal argument. He uses a traditional rabbinic technique of stringing together Uh, several verses. Many of them here are from the book of Psalms. And the big idea is of the universality of sin. He says there's no one righteous, no one is good, no one is acceptable on their own. It's a pretty dramatic picture. Here's the tension. We all admit that we're not perfect. I've yet to meet someone who will claim perfection. But we're all really good at doing the comparison game, right? Well, I mean, I'm not the worst person in the world. I'm better than that guy over there. Well, I'm not a murderer, but Jesus says if you hate your brother in your heart, you've already done it. Well, I'm I'm, I'm not an adulterer. Well, if you lust after someone, you've committed the act. You see, we, we do the comparison game, and then we realize that it, that it breaks down. Because we can't be good enough to fix this problem. It's like trying to push over a skyscraper. It's also important to note that Paul is not denying common grace here. He's, he's not saying that people can't do good things, that people can't be nice, moral, decent folks apart from Christ. I know people that are not Christians that, that are great people by all accounts. Paul's point is that's not good enough because it comes so short of God's standard, which is holiness and perfection. So do your best and try harder is not good enough. It's not even close. 
Even the best human beings that we can think of don't come close to what God had in mind for us and what is possible in Christ and to one day the kind of people that we will be. We cannot even imagine it. And so our best efforts are like putting a Band-Aid on a person that needs a blood transfusion. Not real helpful. Doesn't get the job done. So Paul makes his case. He begins with the character of sinful people. Verse 10. He says, there's no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So he begins with the problem. There's no one who is righteous. That is God's standard, and we're going to find out that there's a righteousness that comes from God that none of us could do. That's the good news, but you've got to wait till next week. Fortunately, you don't have to wait like a whole year to get there. But we're building a little bit of attention. Paul says the problem is people are ignorant. Only God can open our eyes to truly see what we need to see. We can be very smart. We can be intelligent. We can have a lot of knowledge. But the knowledge of God only comes from God. And we need the gospel in order to get there. Without it, we have ignorance. He says you're guilty of godlessness. Again, I talked about that last week. It's a disregard for God. It's treating God as though he doesn't matter or he's only marginally mattered. He only marginally matters in our lives. This ultimately leads to a waywardness. All have turned away. We, if we don't live God's way, what do we live? Well, we live our own way. We all come up with our own version of that. And then, it sounds kind of mean, he says, this leads to becoming worthless. That sounds like a low blow, like hitting someone who's already down. You know? And on top of that, you're worthless. Well, what does he mean by that? It's not just a generic insult. He means that your life cannot become what God created it to be apart from the grace of God. It won't become worthy in, in, a, in a spiritual way according to God's standard. I think he's kind of capturing the thought of Jesus when Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what Jesus said. Well, it didn't literally mean you can't do anything. He's saying, apart from me, you cannot bear true spiritual fruit, lasting fruit. You can't make an impact in the kingdom of God. You cannot receive the kingdom of God. You cannot become a spiritually alive person without me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So Paul says, you're worthless. So it's pretty bad. His language is clear. All all, no one, no one, everyone. It's a comprehensive problem. If you think you're good enough, you're not. Sorry. You don't even come close. So our character gives testimony to the fact that we are sinful people, calling us guilty in God's courtroom. The second area is our conversation, the conversation of sinful people. Our words give testimony to the power of sin over the human race. One of the most powerful manifestations of our sinful nature comes through our words. We're all acquainted with this. We know that our words are powerful. The words of other people are powerful. And words can be powerful for good or for evil, for tearing others down or building them up. Even in Christ, we know this is a very real struggle to keep control over our tongue because our words have power. You remember things that people have said to you, the really good ones. And the really bad ones. They stick with you. We wish we could forget those things, but words are powerful. You hold on to them. And and I love 
this example that Paul uses. He says, Your, their throats are open graves. What does that mean? Well, it means when we open our mouths, we testify to spiritual death. Our words reveal what's going on in the inside of us. Right? I remember a couple of weeks ago, Colin saying something about, you know, people uh, knew everything that I thought. Sometimes it's not just the words you say, but the words you thought about saying. We're held accountable for those. I don't like that, but it's true. And so he says that your words spread poison. They bring curses and bitterness. They show that you are guilty. You think you're a pretty good person? Think about the words that you use. And you'll realize that you're guilty. So then the third area is the conduct of sinful people. It shows that we're all guilty before God. He says their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. The sinful nature leads to violence and hatred and destruction. That's the testimony of human history, and we see that it's still true today. In our sinful nature, we are capable of some pretty terrible things as human beings. Sin has consequences. It leaves a trail of pain and heartache and misery. It causes restlessness and the inability to find peace. It leads to conflict in human relationships rather than peace with our neighbors. So where does this ignorance come from? Where does this willful rebellion and these sinful deeds, sinful words and actions come from? The final line of evidence, concluding this section, is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the foundation of all of it. Because we do not view God properly and have proper awe and adoration and and joyful surrender and respect, because we do not bow our lives into surrender to who God is, all of these things are the result of that. The, The Old Testament wisdom literature says that it's the wisdom of God, or the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, to know God and be in right relationship with Him. The book of Ecclesiastes concludes by saying, fear God and keep His commands. This is the duty of all mankind. That's what it all boils down to. Fear God and keep his commands. And Paul says, we don't do that. Apart from Christ, we don't even come close. We don't even seek to do that. And so, as a result, no one seeks God. No one does good. No one is righteous. It's really bad. So where does this leave us? How does Paul conclude this section? He brings his argument to a close with an undeniable verdict of guilty. And every unbeliever, really everyone, is under God's holy law and is accountable to him. We're all accountable to God. You know, there's this funny thing that happens uh, with me being a pastor. Uh, Some people treat me differently because I'm a pastor. That's not all bad. It's not all good. It's just a funny thing that I've observed over time and I think it's the experience of a lot of pastors. It's maybe becoming less true, but often in public settings, people get weird around us. <laughs> it's like they don't know what to do. So a very common occurrence will be I go to play golf, not as often as I'd like to, but, you know, in my dreams, I go and play golf, and uh, people say, you know, around hole three or four, it's like, what do you do? You know, and everybody says what they do, and they say, okay, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor. And sometimes that's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Uh, sometimes it's People don't know what to do with it. But often guys will go, oh, well, why didn't you tell us in the first hole? You know, here I am telling bad jokes and swearing and all this, you know. But here's the thing. 
you're not accountable to me. You're accountable to God, so don't act differently around me. I'm not going to judge you. That's, that's not my job. You're accountable to God. That's Paul's conclusion. Every single person is accountable to God, and he's just made the case, look, your character, your speech, and your conduct, everything about your life points in the direction of you are a sinner. You're a rebel. You are not the human being that God created you to be. So the verdict comes down, guilty in God's cosmic courtroom, and what's the response? Silence. You can hear a pin drop. That's what Paul says. We have nothing to say because we know that it's true. And in fact, the worst thing you can do at this point is to open your mouth and try to make a case for yourself. And silence is actually the appropriate response to say, you know what? That's right. I have nothing. I I cannot do it on my own. In fact, me trying to get it right is like trying to push over a skyscraper. It's ridiculous. You can't do it. And yet the human heart defaults to a workspace righteousness. We do. Even, Even in Christ, we still think that we've just got to bootstrap it. We've got to work harder. The thing is, you, you enter this process by the grace of God, only by the grace of God. You were spiritually dead before. It's only by the grace of God, but it continues as a work of God's grace. And the only way that it's going to come to a conclusion, the only way that one day you're going to actually become the person that God created you to be that reflects Jesus is by the grace of God. It's by grace from beginning to end. So I don't know where you find yourself in the process. Maybe, maybe you realize that you've been trying to push over the skyscraper and you need to stop and you need to surrender your life to the one who has the power to transform you from a person who is bound by sin into a person who is becoming more like Jesus. Quit trying to push it over. Or maybe you are in Christ, but you still find yourself acting in that old way, trying to become this new person by your own effort. And what's the response? It's the same, to surrender and to lean into God's grace and to adopt the rhythms of grace, to live in the way of Jesus. To clothe yourself in the righteousness of Jesus is the only way that you can stand before a holy God. It's the only way that you can walk into the courtroom of God and say, here's my document, I'm in Christ. That's the only way you can stand before a holy God, is to be in Jesus. So why does all this matter? Well, because our understanding of the problem dictates our answer to the problem. Some of you might say, Pastor, why do we even have to go through this whole bad news section? Why can't you just give us the solution? Well, because we won't seek the right solution if we don't understand the problem. And you're going to hear all kinds of ideas out there in the world about what the problem really is. Every worldview comes up with different things that they think are the main thing. There are many people today that think that the main problem is ignorance. That's the main human problem. If we can just get people the right information, we can educate them enough. Nothing wrong with education. I'm not against that. I'm just saying the fundamental human problem is not a problem of ignorance because even if we knew all the right things, we still don't have the power to do them. I mean, 
Again, we're going to come back to all this. In Romans 7, Paul's going to say that. I know the things I ought to do, and I don't do them anyway. And we all go, yep, me too. Silent. No argument. So the problem is not ignorance. Some people believe the fundamental human problem is an unequal distribution of wealth. And so if we could just solve that problem, then everything else would work out. If people had the right resources and we all lived equally, which would be an impossible task, but even if we could, would that solve the human problem? No, because the Bible and God's answer is that the fundamental human problem is sin. That's the problem. It's a rebellion from God. And the answer is not found in us. It's an answer. It's a solution that comes from God. Do better, try harder is not good enough. It's like trying to push over a skyscraper. The solution is found in God. And this whole section has been building up to the great reveal of Romans 3.21, which begins, but now. But now. That's the good news. All the bad news that we gave you in two weeks, but all this bad news, this really bad scenario that we're all guilty and we all have this sinful nature leads up to this good news, which is found in a solution that is from God. But God, that is the story of the Bible. We have really messed this thing up. I mean, royally messed this thing up. And we are without hope but God. That's the good news. But you got to wait for next week. Or you can read ahead in your Bibles. <laughs> Would you join me as we pray together? Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in this mess. Praise the Lord. God, we thank you that you are gracious, and you are loving, and you are patient, and you are kind, and that you love us in spite of our deep, dark sin. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that they would believe that, that they would believe no matter how many times they've sinned, that they would believe that in spite of those secret things, they think that no one else knows, in spite of the cycle of continuing to go back to the same stuff. God, no matter how dark the places are that we find ourselves in, there's no place so dark that your light cannot break through. And God, you love us. And you call us back to yourself. So God, forgive us for trying to come up with our own solutions and go to our own ways. Lord, we believe this good news. That you broke into time and you saved us from ourselves. God, would we receive that gift? Would we live into that gift? Would we share that gift with others? Father, we love you and we praise you for this good news about your good world because you are a good God. And we praise you today. We worship you together. In Jesus' name, amen.